there were probably 10 or 12 of us queued up waiting for the door to the job centre to open and a bus driver came down the road and pulled up at the bus stop and he looked out of his side window at us and the look on his face was just absolute disdain. He looked at us like we were something on the bottom of his shoe. I felt I wanted to go and punch him. I wanted to say to him, do you not know I'm not worthless. I, I'm here trying my absolute best to still make a future for myself and my wife and my family. And what the hell right have you got to sit there and judge me? Hello and welcome to episode two of Plodding Along. Thank you very much for joining me. People who listen to episode one will be very happy to hear that the second episode doesn't start with me in tears. So that's not going to be a running theme through all of the episodes. You'll be very, very pleased and very relieved to hear. So first and foremost, guys, thank you so much to those who have listened to the first episode. I've had some absolutely wonderful feedback already. I've heard from people I went to school with that I've not heard from in years. I have spoken to people that I'd kind of lost touch with and not really chatted to for a long time. Some family that I have not seen for ages. It's honestly, it's been so heartwarming to know that people have actually listened and, and enjoyed the first episode. And a couple of messages that I've had that have been really, really fantastic to receive. A couple of people who have experienced loss and the interview that I did in episode one with Kurt Lindley has helped them to process their own feelings and their own emotions in a new way which is so amazing to hear so thank you so much to everybody who's listened if you've not heard it you can listen to episode one on Spotify and on all good podcast providers but here we are in episode two um, it's a little bit different of course every episode of plodding along follows a different theme. So this episode, we are talking about unemployment and losing your job. Um, but before we get into it, I wanted to share something mental health related that I saw this week that for some reason just fascinated me. And I also found it quite funny as well. Um, so I saw on Twitter, uh, people were sharing, I don't know if you follow the Twitter account Letters of Note, which is just basically historic, interesting letters that have been written throughout the ages um, and I saw a letter on there that had been written by Charles Darwin in 1861 and I don't know about you guys but when I think of the great sort of literary minds the great scientists the great philosophers I never think of those people as having mental health issues or having almost having feelings in a way. I know that sounds really weird, but I can't imagine Isaac Newton having a bad day or feeling a bit down. I just imagine he's doing genius stuff most of the time. Um, so this really interested me. It's a letter written by Charles Darwin to one of his friends um, in 1861. He was um, researching a book about flowers and namely he was writing about orchids at the time 
and he wrote to his friend and said, I'm going to write a little book for Murray on orchids. And today I hate them worse than anything. (laughs) Which I find absolutely hilarious for some reason that Charles Darwin, someone that you just, I mean, the father of evolution, basically, and one of the great naturalists of history. And he had a day where he was like, these fucking orchids, I am absolutely sick to the back teeth of poxy orchids. Shove them up your ass. <laughs> I just, I mean, those were my words, not Charles's. But I just find that so interesting to think of um, people from throughout history who have had this kind of days that we've all had where they don't want to go to work, you know, except Charles Darwin's work was changing the world forever. So uh, that's a little mental health through the ages. Maybe that'll become a regular feature. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'll never do that again because I'll never find another example of a genius who also struggled with hating orchids. Um, But there you go. So guys, a guest for episode two. His name is Michael Smith. Uh, He's a health and safety manager. And we have something in common And that is that Michael Smith is also my dad. That's right, folks. You get two Smiths for the price of one. Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation we have. My dad lost his job in 2012. He'll explain all about what happened. But I was just finishing uni at the time. And and this sounds awful, but the whole thing sort of passed me by a little bit. I was obviously aware of what was going on and and it was a worry at the time, but I don't remember it being a massive conversation that I had with my mum or my dad or my sister, anybody really. We just sort of got on with it as a family, but it's only when I've started to have my own mental health issues in later life and I've thought back to that time and my dad was obviously going through something quite harrowing and quite difficult and I feel quite guilty, to be honest, that we never really discussed it at the time. And and I don't feel like I supported him really through that. So when I started plodding along and started the podcast, I thought to myself that actually what a fantastic opportunity for me and my dad to have a sit down over Zoom and talk about it. Talk about it in depth, how it made him feel, what the process was of, of losing his job and what that did to his mental health. So my dad has been amazingly supportive about my mental health struggles. Uh, My whole family have been fantastic and I've had great conversations with them. So it was really nice for me to sit down with my dad and talk about him and open up on some of his struggles in the past. So I really hope you enjoy listening to the conversation. I think it's a really good one. So without further ado, here's episode two of Plodding Along. Michael Smith, a.k.a. Dad, a.k.a. Mikey. Hello. Hello. Hello, Liam. Hello, son. Heir of my fortunes. (laughs) Absolutely. How are you doing? You had your COVID jab yesterday. I did. I was very grateful to receive it, but it has wiped me out, I'm afraid. So you're going to be one of those... Are you you going to be a fully-fledged conspiracy theorist about it now, are you? I may be. Um, No, at the end of the day, I'm just grateful to be protected. Well, thank you for doing uh, my podcast. As you know, um, 
It's called Plodding Along, and basically it's just a conversation with different people about mental health, all kind of different elements of mental health. So I'm really, I'm really interested to chat to you today because this is something that we've not really spoken about that much in depth. I was obviously aware when it happened, but I was only 21. Maybe you guys shielded us a little bit from really how you felt about it, and that's understandable. But you, you lost your job, didn't you, in 2012? I did. I did. Um, I worked in oil refining. Um, ironically, it was the second time I'd lost a job in oil refining because I used to work for uh, another company that had a refinery down on the River Thames. They actually um, laid us off around the millennium. Um, and I had a little bit of a hiatus period, but then I went and worked at the refinery that was actually next door. And then lo and behold, they laid us off from that one as well. So I don't know if that's something to do with me. <laughs> You've had an incredible impact on the global economy. <laughs> yes, I like to think so. Um, yeah, um, the, the more latter one, um, I, I had worked um, for uh, a major multinational oil company uh, at the, uh, the refinery they had down on the River Thames. Um, I'd been there for the thick end of 10 years. They actually sold us for in the region of £1.6 billion to uh, an American um, venture capitalist. Uh, he had uh, a bit of a track record in the States of buying up assets from major oil companies that they either were running down or no longer wanted. Um, and basically, he would sort of put them together as a bit of a portfolio, polish them up, uh, and then he sold them on in America. He did that twice and he made an awful lot of money doing it. And he decided that he would come to Europe and use the same business model. At the time it was brought up by, by him, uh, it was actually a very profitable oil refinery. Um, and within the portfolio that he set up in Europe, we were by far the biggest asset that he had. Unfortunately, um, it seems like his his model that had been so successful for him in the United States didn't work very well in Europe. Eventually, we were sort of put on notice that it was looking very likely that actually the whole European consortium was going to go into administration. Uh, and that, that happened uh, around May or June in 2012. I remember the exact date of that. That was the day, it was the day before my birthday. It was the 28th of May, 2012. You were, I think you were still away at uni um, first time yeah. round. So, you, you know, you said about us shielding you from it. Yes, to a degree, um, there was an element of shielding, but I think some of it was natural anyway, because uh, you were already away doing your uni degree. Um, so it wasn't such an up close and personal experience for you because you weren't living at at home um, for large periods anyway. So it was really just uh, your mum and I. Eventually, um, the the sad day did come uh, when they actually did shut the refinery down. And I remember, you know, we were we were all sent away. Um, just as a bit of a background, what's what's useful I think to know is that in a job uh, in a place like an oil refinery it it's inherently dangerous work um, as you know I'd, I'd had a really bad industrial accident 
many years before when I worked for the previous oil company at the previous refinery and I'd almost died from that. Luckily I, I survived it but uh, they are inherently dangerous processes and very dangerous places and um, you work as a shift. Of, it's almost the, the best uh, analogy I can give is almost like a shift in the fire brigade. You know that you are reliant on your friends and your colleagues potentially to save your life. But what that actually does is that breeds a real closeness between that group of people because you you are aware. It's not something you talk about overtly because... You're men. Talk about, you know, what are we going to do to avoid being killed tonight? But um, it it's there. It, it gives that spirit, that almost band of brothers kind of thing. Um, and that, that was very strong. Um when we sort of scattered, I, I I can remember at the time I said it was like scattering seeds to the wind because I I lived uh, 20, 25 miles away from the refinery and not a lot of the other guys lived where I lived. They were all based more along the River Thames and, and quite a lot closer. So it wasn't like, you know, when I go out shopping or walk down the road that I would necessarily see those guys um, in fact, the only time for most of it that I saw people who worked at the refinery was when I was at the refinery, when I'd gone in on my shifts. Um, we, on my shift, we had uh, a close-knit little group. Uh, I was a keen golfer. There were other keen golfers on the shift. Uh, and we used to meet. You know, we had, we had rest days in between our shift periods. Uh, and we would go and meet as a group of maybe six or eight guys uh, and and play golf and enjoy a beer and and we did it we did it regularly we would we would play probably once a week and what i found was when when we actually did finish for the last time almost immediately that started to disappear um with the best will in the world you know what it's like you know if you've worked in a place you say to people, oh, yeah, we'll stay in touch, you know, make sure, make, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll message and we'll speak. And uh, sometimes it's not, it's not quite the way it goes. And um, I had a couple of particularly close friends on shift. I stayed in touch with them uh, in, in a couple of cases for several years after that particular job finished. But it was never, ever the same. It's just really sad, isn't it? And I think that happens quite often with men in particular, that the hurt, pride and the embarrassment of having lost your job. It's just sad that that's happened. So what was your last day there like? I I got called in. There was a a place, they, they called in receivers and we had to go to a very big corporate type um, function room uh, we were given a time and a day. Basically, I, I sat down on a seat and I saw several people that I knew. Um, so we had a little chat. But I mean, by this time, it had probably been a couple of weeks since we'd um, seen each other. So there was lots and lots of general kind of chat about how you doing, you know, how are things, how's your family? Um, but then I got called and uh, I had to go and see an employee of the administration firm. And um, frankly, Liam, I've never felt so processed in my life. 
I was given a pack of information. They were trying to read from almost cue cards. Um, we are deeply sorry that you've lost your entire livelihood. It was it was almost robotic, um, and I can remember clearly starting to feel very very angry. And in the end, I actually said, because the guy that was dealing with me, by this stage, I was already just into my 50s. This guy was probably mid-20s. He wasn't a lot older than you. And I said to him, with respect, mate, you know, you can save that BS. I'm not interested. Just do what you got to do. Give me what you got to give me and I'm gone. There was, I've got to say, almost like a pity in his, in his face. And it must have been, with, with hindsight, a really difficult thing. You're dealing with, I mean, there were a number, I saw a couple of guys that day who were in tears. I'd only worked there, in truth, for about 10 years. But a couple of my best friends in refining had been there since they were 16 years old. They'd been there 30, 34 years it was their entire life, their whole career. And to be honest, they were fabulous oil men. They, you know, it, it is, it's a very complex uh, process, oil refining. It's like a giant chemistry set. And the ramifications for getting things wrong are enormous. You can kill people, you can blow things up, you can harm the environment like nobody would know. And these guys were fabulous at it. And I knew, I mean, we we known each other for 10 years and been close friends. I knew that in a couple of them, their cases, they were literally a few months away from being able to draw a really good final salary pension. It wasn't even a defined contribution scheme. It was a final salary scheme that they'd been in for 30 odd years. God, that's devastating, isn't it? It was. And I remember... Uh, one night shift uh, when we were in that preamble period just prior to the actual closure of the refinery I went in one night shift and I talked to one of these guys and he said to me would you help me with a CV mate I've never had one and it made me want to cry to be honest because I, you know, I I'd done a bit of job hopping admittedly so I was much more used to compiling a CV and putting information together and to a degree going through interview processes. It wasn't that long beforehand that I'd that I'd done that. But guys like these two, you know, the last interview they had was as a 16-year-old boy and they were now in their 50s thinking that they were going to do the job they loved until the day they retired and then headed into the, the hills with a really great pension and a big lump sum of money. Um, and suddenly that was all ripped away. And the, the effect on those guys was absolutely devastating. And, and by extension, the effect on people like me was devastating because I was up close and personal witnessing what they were going through. You know, that, that enormous sense of disappointment and dread, truly dread on their part about what, what the hell am I going to do now? I guess but the first thing I didn't really, again, take it in when I was a kid, the phrase being made redundant. I remember that just coming out. I remember when you were made redundant the first time. But it's only now that I'm a bit older and I actually think about what that language means. 
the phrase being made redundant is a horrible, horrible phrase, isn't it? How do you deal with the emotional baggage that comes with that? You're right. It's it's actually brutal. That's the word I'm going to use. It's brutal because redundant suggests not needed, not wanted, not yeah. needed. Um, and, you know, you had a highly skilled group of men and women. Um, and, you know, in, in some respects, um, that did play to the advantage of some of the people. So, for example, an awful lot of my colleagues decided they wanted to stay in the oil industry because that was their speciality. And they got used to the lifestyle that being in that industry could bring them. What that meant in real terms was that a huge number of them got jobs on oil platforms in the North Sea. They joined other oil companies and did offshore work. Um, I thought long and hard um, about do I want to do that? Because, as I said, at the time of the closure, I'd already turned 50. I know that's not old, but you have to go through some really stringent training. Um, you know, we've all heard the stories about people being thrown into swimming pools and helicopters being turned upside down, and but that's a reality. You have to do all of this emergency response training to be able to work offshore. And I just thought, you know what, I don't really want to go through all that now. And the danger element of the job is even worse on an oil rig. And I've always been uh, very much a family man. Uh, I'm a home bird, really. I love my home, as I hope you know. I love my family, as I hope you know. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I mean, to, to sort of sit on a three-legged stool out in the North Sea for three weeks at a time. Um, if something goes wrong at home, you are not going to be able to get home. Simple as that. It would have to be a catastrophic thing like a death of a family member and then yes they will airlift you off of the platform um but i used to i used to sort of see things on facebook from some of my colleagues about you know i'm i'm beginning the journey home because they they would have a 4 hour helicopter flight from their platform in the far reaches of the north sea i mean some of them were working nearer to norway than they did to the uk They'd have a four-hour flight to the Shetland Islands and then a two-hour flight from the Shetland to uh, Aberdeen and then a flight from Aberdeen to City Airport in London and then a train out. And they'd leave, they'd leave the platform at maybe seven in the morning and they wouldn't walk in their front door in Hockley or somewhere until 11 o'clock that night. I just thought, do I really want to do that? But doesn't that, that might speak to the... Maybe desperation's is too strong a word, but it might speak to the complete lack of hope of getting another job anywhere else. Like you said, some of those guys that knew nothing else, as highly skilled as they were, just turned to that because it's comparatively safe to them compared to, you know, being vulnerable, you know, be, facing being unemployed, if that was your choice. That's exactly what I believe happened. Um, they were, we were frightened. We were all frightened, frightened witless. Um, you know, because 
you used you said that word the, the connotations of the word redundant to be told when you're 50 years old or 55 well you're redundant now yeah exactly you're not needed anymore in the case of my my two friends you know that's all they'd done since they were 16 year old boys and they were blooming good at it but suddenly that's finished um, yeah, that was exactly, they, they both went out to platforms on the North Sea for exactly the reason you've just said, Liam, um, because that's all they ever did, and they were really good at it, and they were very skilled at it, but they had no other skills, no other workplace skills. As I say, they didn't even have a CV, because they'd never needed one. It was, it, was a, it was almost a job for life once you were in it, you know. Something I'm really interested in because I've in the last in the last year or so I've really since I first got diagnosed with depression I've completely sort of changed my view on work I think um and you you just said something that speaks to how I feel as well that when I was in my early 20s as you know my ambition used to be to work in football and I was obsessed with the idea of doing everything I could to get a job doing social media for a football club. And I was, yeah, really passionate about it. I did all that work experience at Colchester United. I went to Ipswich a couple of times for games and I wrote for their programme. And I did a lot of free stuff to try and get this job in football. Um, And I, I got knocked back a few times. I actually had an interview at Doncaster Rovers and got knocked back for that. And I was gutted at the time. Um, But over the last year... I've realised the things that matter to me. I'm With all this job stuff, I'm chasing something that I don't think I will ever get to. There, there is no job on earth that will fill the things that I'm looking for it to fill. And those are issues that I've had to look deeper in myself to fill that void, if that makes sense. With family and having a daughter now, it's just changed my perspective completely. And I think that's interesting that you said the same thing about when you were faced with the potential of going on to an off- offshore oil rig, you're more concerned about being at home and your family and that kind of stuff. Not that obviously the guys that made the other decision, they obviously love their families. I'm not questioning that. But but I think there is something about men in particular that having a job, having a career, not even just a job, that word needs to be career building towards a great pension, building towards a fantastic wage. The cliche of earning more than your dad did is a thing that a lot of people chase. A lot of men chase that. So I'm wondering what the feeling was around the refinery at the time that it was closing. You mentioned a couple of guys being in tears. Were there ever any of those conversations about how vulnerable it made people feel? It's such a shame that for whatever reason, do you think it could be pride or what what is it about typically men in that kind of situation you've spoken at length about the band of brothers feeling how close you were how much you relied on each other and then when you all needed that support more than ever it dissipates because you all go off and have to deal with it on your own and I think that that's just sad isn't it it is um it it felt an incredibly lonely time. I remember in my own personal journey, um, I was hearing 
because because obviously it, it was a slow descent into the final closure. We knew it was coming. So guys had already started to make provision for their future and their family's futures. And I was hearing more and more and more people say, I've got a job with this company, that company. I'm going offshore. New beginnings, new new adventures. And more and more guys were doing it. And all I was thinking was, what the hell am I going to do? Do I do that? Should I do that? Am I wrong not to do that? Oh, my God. What am I going to do? And I remember one of one of the most useful exercises we did uh, and something that I would recommend to anyone who's going through a similar journey now is you need to understand the balance of your life, your working life, your economic life as a as a person, as a family. Uh, I remember sitting down with your mum. And we worked out in close detail what all the outgoings for us were. What loans did we have? How much did we spend on food? What were our bills? Uh, you know, to to the closest degree that we could. Um, and we were able to work out that, yes, things were not going to be as they were before because all of that. Uh, ability to be able to have the nicer things in life the holidays you know the fancy cars the meals out or whatever you wouldn't necessarily be able to do that certainly for a while but we could cover the outgoings and that that was um that was a big moment for me because it actually felt then that I could take a little time to have a a, a more in-depth analysis of what I might want to do and what options might be open to me. I think one of the things, I mean, up until now, it's all sounded a bit sad and, um, you know, we're, we're talking broken industries and places finishing. But there are little glimpses of hope that come out of this. Um, when years ago, the first refinery shut and I was made redundant, to their end discredit, um, and I will name them, it was it was Shell that we worked for. Uh, they were wonderful because they said to every man and woman, we want to support you as much as we can through this journey. We still value you. So if you want any kind of training, if you want something provided for you, if you want to learn how to drive a lorry, um, we will finance that for you because it might just give you some skills that you can take forward. And ironically, uh, my, me and probably about a dozen others, uh, we had found a health and safety qualification called the NEBOSH General Certificate, um, which is kind of the first one on the rungs of becoming a health and safety professional. And we asked Shell to pay for that for us, and they did. And we, we all sat the exam and we all passed. So that sort of came to fruition for me um, when the second refinery shut, because ultimately that was one of the saviours for me. Um, I remember because I, I said I felt lost, I felt I felt valueless, I felt like I had no worth. Um, I had to go and sign on, sign on the dole. And I can remember going to my local job centre in Chelmsford and I used to call the place the well of lost souls 
because you would queue up outside. I remember one morning particularly, um, I got there early, maybe the place opened at eight o'clock and I'd got there at 10 to eight and I was standing outside and there's a bus stop just over the road from that particular building in Chelmsford Town Centre. And there were uh, probably 10 or 12 of us queued up waiting for the door to the job centre to open. And a bus driver came down the road and pulled up at the bus stop and he looked out of his side window at us and the look on his face was just absolute disdain. He looked at us like we were something on the bottom of his shoe. I felt I wanted to go and punch him. I wanted to say to him, do you not know I'm not worthless. I, I'm here trying my absolute best to still make a future for myself and my wife and my family. And what the hell right have you got to sit there and judge me? Because that's what it felt like he was doing. There he was in the seat of his bus, in his job as a bus driver, looking at us, me included, like, yeah, there you go, sponges, you know, living off my, my tax money. Um, and I, I can, I, I used to have to go every couple of weeks to sign on. And when you go through that process, they give you a number of forms to take with you and you have to record faithfully all the jobs that you've gone seeking for. And you have to record what websites you've looked at and whether you've written to anyone and have you phoned anyone. And, and it's basically a log of proof that you are seek, trying actively to seek work. And I found that utterly demeaning because I couldn't have been trying harder to get work, but having to scribble it down on this little photocopied form and take it with me for teacher to look at just felt awful. And the irony was, you know, when I when I first gone in there and I, I had my first conversations with the job centre staff, um, it became clear really quickly because the, the, there was a woman. She said to me, so what do you do? I said, I worked in an oil refinery. Really? Yeah. Okay, what does that involve? Didn't have a clue. She wouldn't have been able to usefully provide me with any guidance whatsoever on what to do for a new job what similar jobs might be on their portfolio. She used to regularly sort of throw warehouse operative jobs my way because it had the word operator in there, you know. And she did say to me at one stage, I, I think it's probably best if I leave this to you, isn't it? Because you know a lot more about this than I do. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And yes, it is. Um, but again, imagine if you were going through that you can see how easy it is for people to slip into depression and obviously you've lost your job anyway, but the the kind of naturally um, potentially demeaning parts of that whole process of, like you say, having to prove that you're actually looking for work and not just taking the benefit having to having to go in and face to face and speak to somebody when you're at such a low ebb and deal with that frustration. You can see how people spiral in that kind of situation, can't you, for sure? Very much so. And I and I I grew to I grew to loathe 
the thought of having to do that every couple of weeks. I, I detested going there. Um, I felt resentful. I think this is one of the things. It's like a lot of mental health issues. You go through so many phases, so many um, places. Um, I, I had, I ranged from enormous anger, um, enormous anger at the man who'd run his business so badly that I'd lost my job. Um, enormous anger at feeling so processed by the administrators. Enormous anger, like you've said, Liam, about having to prove, feel like I had to prove my worth so that they would give me whatever money they would give me. And also, I mean, I, I actually sent off applications for in excess of 50 jobs. And some of those jobs would not have been probably that suitable. But there is a great sense, you mentioned the word earlier, desperation creeps in. Certainly for my generation, I, you know, I, I am, uh, I'm going to be 60 this year. I'm that crossover generation. My dad, his generation, they'd always worked hard, provided for their families. And that carried through to my generation too. Um, we were probably the last of the generations where the man was the breadwinner. Still, it was a very old-fashioned traditionalist. Um, and, you know, we, your mum and I followed that pattern because she took time out of her uh, nursing career to raise you kids. Uh, and I went out to work. And I'd provided for you and your sister and your mum all my working life and it's what I was we're often defined aren't we by by the job we do because how often in a conversation you meet somebody for the first time and they'll say what do you do what do you do you, you'll tell them your name and then they'll say so what do you do so we're kind of we have this hoop rung around our neck which is our job this is what I do and um, when you lose that, you lose such a big part of your identity. And I think it's that, it's that emptiness you feel. Because suddenly, if someone in the street said to you, so what do you do? What are you going to say? I'm unemployed. I'm redundant. I don't do anything. I, I, I fill in a little form and go somewhere every two weeks to try and prove that I'm not a waster. I get looked at by a bus driver. You know, <laughs> professionally, it's just it's it, it it was it was such a uh, an emotionally difficult time because we are all prideful of what we do. You know, I've always been very prideful of um, providing for my family. Um, I remember when. Um, you and your sister had at long last finished all of your studies. I had a really, I had a little hiccup in my life and in my mental health because it was like my purpose had stopped because suddenly you didn't need me anymore. Now, I know that's, that's a crazy thing to say because emotionally, I'm your dad. I, yeah. You'll always need me. Of course you will. No, no less than I needed my dad. 
My drive yeah. had been to make things available to you and your sister to offer you opportunities. That was so important to me through my working life and particularly working in this highly paid industry, it gave me the opportunity to be able to make opportunities available to both of you for the rest of your lives. And and that felt incredible. And then suddenly that's gone. And it's like, what do I do now? What, what do I do now? A good thing, and if anyone... If anyone's going through this right now and, you know, with with the, the COVID situation, the lockdown, an awful lot of people have lost their jobs. And it's a really tough time because there's a there's a big pool of people, particularly if they're lower skilled um, and they're not in a particularly specialist job. If, if they're looking for general employment, uh, there's an awful lot of people looking for that stuff right now. Um what I would say, because it, it was enormously valuable to me, was you need to talk to your friends and your family. Ironically, my route out of this dark place was I got contacted by someone who had worked at the refinery previously and had actually left because she had the good sense to do so before it had all gone south. Um, but but she actually was the health and safety manager at a, a fairly big uh, company in Chelmsford and she contacted me through LinkedIn um, I didn't I, I didn't know her close I knew of her and we'd spoken briefly at work but we didn't work together but she she contacted me and uh, she said to me I'm really sorry to hear about what's happened at the refinery have you got anything are you looking what, what's going on for you and I was like no nope. Uh, yes, I am looking desperately. I've applied for 50 jobs. That's something I was going to say. Of all those 50 jobs I applied for, do you know I only even got an acknowledgement that I'd applied from two of them? Even give me, you know, a dear John, sorry, mate, but no. They just didn't get back at all. And that that was that you could feel that sucking the life out of you because you'd almost, even as you were sending it off, you're thinking there's another one, there's another one. There's another one. Yeah, and you never quite know where you never quite know where the next thing is gonna come from, I guess, do you? You don't. And ironically, you know, if if the closure of the refinery hadn't have happened, I would almost certainly not have gone down the route that I have in the ten years since. Um, to the point where I'm doing a job now that um I feel is much more worthwhile than any I've ever done because I'm a health and safety manager now. I'm a mental health first aider now. The best moments of my day are knowing, do you know what? I've saved some people there. I've done some good stuff. I've stopped something that could have made people very ill or injured them. The important thing is... um, you know, reach out, use what's there for you, because most people have got people that are there for them. They've got contacts that they could actually reach out to. They may not choose to. And in some cases, maybe pride stops them. But it's not a time for that. Um, Look at it as an opportunity, because it's given me an opportunity to discover things about myself and what I enjoy that actually has enriched my life. 
And when I get messages from people that I've helped, particularly as a mental health first aider, that is worth more than any salary I ever got in oil refining. That is, wow. And, and you know, the, the twists and turns of life give you those opportunities. You've just got to grab them. Well, there you have it, guys. That's episode two. First and foremost, thank you so much to my dad, to Mike, for doing the interview with me and having that conversation. I really enjoyed chatting to him. And it really opened my eyes, to be honest, because I feel like we spoke about things and I heard things from him. He said things to me that I've never heard him say before. So I didn't, to be honest, when he mentioned and and brought up that he'd had to sign on and had received job seekers allowance. I couldn't really remember that, to be honest, but that clearly had a huge impact on him and how he felt. And quite rightly, I mean, as we spoke about in the interview, I can see how going through that process and and the feelings that he was experiencing of, you know, almost a demeaning situation, whether it happened or not, he felt like he'd been judged by people including the the bus driver who gave him a filthy look that might have maybe been my dad's self-consciousness perceiving that it might have actually been an asshole of a bus driver it could happen (laughs) stranger things have happened no I've, I've never heard him talk about that before so that was really interesting to me and I'm still so fascinated by the culture of the oil refinery those very masculine men that my dad spoke about all of whom went through something really difficult and something that does trigger a lot of emotions and a lot of uh, concern, desperation, fear, depression, anxiety. But yet they all seem to go through it in isolation. None of them really spoke about those feelings with each other and that's such a shame to me. I, I really feel like, obviously, it's sad that they didn't feel able to open up to each other in that way and I'm hoping that that's the sort of thing that will be a bit less common now Um, obviously that happened in 2012 and even in those nine years since that I think the conversation around mental health and you know men's mental health and talking to each other I think the conversation has moved on so I don't know obviously you know believe it or not guys working in social media for Doncaster Council is not the most masculine of environments. I do work with some some fantastic men, but, you know, we're not particularly um, what you'd call stereotypically macho men. You know, we're, we're, we're hard in our own way. We're, we're tough. Um, but, you know, I don't work in that kind of masculine environment, so maybe the conversation hasn't got to them yet. Um, but I would certainly hope that anyone who's experiencing the issue of redundancy or job loss or unemployment now would feel more capable of and more enabled and empowered to talk to the people that they work with who are going through the same thing because you know that really helps to have someone else in the same situation that you feel knows what you're experiencing so no it's just a really interesting conversation with my dad and as he mentioned uh, there's going to be a lot of people going through facing unemployment at the moment due to coronavirus. We've lost a good few big brands on the high street. Obviously, a lot of people will be going through the same thing at the moment, having lost their jobs. 
or potentially facing the prospect of losing your jobs or that dreaded horrible phrase being made redundant, which I really think we should try and get rid of. So let's start that campaign straight away. Let's not use the phrase made redundant anymore because no person is redundant just because they've lost one job and they're going to change to do something else. But I hope that what my dad has said in this podcast, if people get to listen to it and if you can share it with anyone who has lost their job recently, I hope that his words and his first-hand account of going through that process can be some comfort. Certainly, I think there's some really useful advice in there about making sure you stay open in terms of chatting to people, talking to your contacts, talking to your friends and family, because you you'd never do know where that next opportunity is going to come from. And not to get too ground down by the process of applications signing on if that is the path that you have to take nothing's permanent it won't last forever something else will come along and it will all be fine so please try and remember that try and stay positive as much as you possibly can talk to your friends and family and better days will come soon so if you enjoyed episode two and you've enjoyed what you've heard on plodding along so far please follow us if you can or give us a rate or Even if you can share it on social media, that would be so appreciated. It really would. I'm on the lookout for more people to speak to. We've got some fantastic guests and different conversations lined up. But if you'd like to be involved or you think you have something to share about mental health, then please do email plodpodcast at gmail.com or follow us at plodpodcast on Twitter. Thanks so much, guys, and I'll see you soon for episode three.